Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, author of five books on all things cycling-related, writer of all things fitness-related, uh, and lover of pretty much all things fitness-related as well. And I just realized that I'm always the one that starts this, so I yeah, feel kind of bad. Last week, you stole my basically my entire intro, so I basically just said my name. But I did not. I said your name. You said the rest of it. Well, often I say the podcast. It is the Consummate Athlete. Okay. Although I think you do start with yeah, it. Yeah, I usually lead. But anyway, who are you? I'm Peter Glassford, and I'm a kinesiologist. I've been able to be practicing my kinesiology profession a little bit more in the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. or more directly or traditionally, I guess. Um, I've been back at the gym in Collingwood, Active Life, and been covering a bunch of different classes. So it's been really fun. I've had younger athletes ranging from eight or nine or 10 years old up to sort of teenagers and then into adults and then people who are coming off of hip surgeries all the way up into today. I was working with a man and a woman who were 65 and yes, yesterday was two brothers who've been coming in for a bunch of years and they sort of, it's funny, they're like 60 years old, 65 maybe. And you know they they joke with with each other like they do as an old man, two old men would. You do love the old guy humor. I oh, apologize. We, we, we had a great time for any jokes in this podcast. So anyhow, it's been good. It's been looking at movement and outside of sort of a very narrow cycling discipline. As much as I love the cyclists, mm-hmm. it's been much more consummate in terms of my kinesiology. So yeah. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of cyclists, though, we also got super narrow with some bike skills focus yesterday, actually. So. We spent Mother's Day doing a mountain bike skills clinic. Yeah, we had a big club session, which I try and do a lot of those when we're we're back in the Ontario area. But, I mean, we did a few, I guess. We do cyclocross ones all over the place. But, yeah, they do well, and they're really fun. And it's, it's cool seeing a club because they're all friends and... You know they're they're supporting each other and it's not it's just it's cool because they they all know each other it's not mm-hmm. like just a random clinic that I've decided to hold it's they've they're sort of hosting me to help them so it's it's an interesting thing but really really I think everyone has a good time and some good aha moments I call them you know people getting it and figuring it out and yeah really cool yeah before that we uh, we actually got to pick up a bunch of little demo equipment over at Joyride 150, the bike park uh, just uh, north of Toronto. So we brought that up to Collingwood for one of the cycling clubs up there to use with their kids course. Uh, but my main purpose in volunteering to go was so I could stop by and see the owner of Joyride, although he wasn't there. I got to drop off a bunch of Shred Girls stuff. So it's it's getting closer, guys. The book comes out May 31st. And if you pre-order the book, t-shirts, hats, all that stuff now, uh, you'll get a ton of bonus stuff uh, versus after May 31st, once it's available you know, through all the normal channels. Yeah, so it's coming fast. Definitely head over to shred-girls.com backslash pre-order. That was really confusing. Just go to the Shred Girl site. You'll find it. Um, Yeah, I'm super excited about that. Orders have been coming in. We're going to be doing some raffles. I have a million calls in about doing different demos and girl talks and stuff at different races. I'm really looking forward to. So, yeah, lots of really fun stuff coming up with that. Have you ever heard the band Girl Talk? I have, Every every time you say that, I'm like... (laughs) Mashups, mashups all day long. I actually went to see them in Brooklyn, like... A decade ago. They're going to say St. Anne because they were there. No, I was cool like way back, way back before I came to Canada. You were cool when mashups were cool. I was cool before I started coming to Canada. 
So. Speaking of mashups, we have uh, a writer and a coach today. Oh. oh my gosh, they're just like us. I think, I don't know if we said We'd that. We'd probably say that in there, but if we yeah. didn't, I just want to point out that they're just like us. I don't know, I think they compared themselves to a married couple, so. Yeah, so there we go. We actually had a really so, good talk about that, uh, how that whole dynamic works. Yeah, so we have <laughs> Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. So Brad's a, a very accomplished writer, mm-hmm. journalist. Um, yeah, writes so for the New York Times. Very good to Runner's follow World. on Twitter. He's very on top of things, as is Steve Magnus, who's a premier running coach, mm-hmm. uh, very well-respected again great to follow on twitter because you get a lot of good information that they're sort of interested in and following or involved with yeah Um, so they have a new book coming out actually june 6th so speaking of new books you should go and pre-order that's another one uh order shred girls for the young girl in your life and then order peak performance for the high performer for the high performer in your life that might be the same girl i don't know yeah so this is a really good podcast we get back into sleep which is i guess the second podcast we've really dove into sleep and they have some new stuff in there for you and as far as what sleep hygiene is you know ways we can get more sleep um, I don't think this is, you know, it's, a, it's almost cliched that, you know, the, the good eight hours of sleep is important and it's sort of the hot thing this year. Oh, but it's so important. But I think they have some good practical info and some interesting stories about it. Um, we also talk about just their, their collaboration and what that was like. So if you're working in a partnership or, you know, any sort of business thing, it, it, you'll find that part interesting. Yeah. I think what I loved reading Peak Performance is actually that it's it's a really cool book for both the athlete and for just like the average person just looking to get more out of their life. So pretty much everything in there kind of goes for both like your work life and your athletic life. Uh, yeah, so, I think a lot of people say that, you know, you learn something from if you've been in high performance or if you've just gone and done a hard cycling ride or yeah. a hard something, you know, you've tried to learn a trick in gymnastics or skateboarding is the classic one. If you, you've spent hours and hours and hours mm-hmm. on something and then you finally get it, you know, that's sort of like life. You're not going to be good at it right away. Um, so they talk about a lot about that sort of how the high performance paradigm transfers between life. Uh, one of the interesting things is sort of periodizing things. They talk about sort of a, you got to make sure you have off weeks with your life too. You know, sometimes you have to hustle and then sometimes you have to sort of just chill out and, and let that ebb and flow come, whether it's training or in whether it's business or, you know, when, family time. When do we time. get to do that? I don't know. I'm after this week, <laughs> this week was really busy. I was covering, like I say, at the gym, so... It was pretty hectic with all this stuff going on. but Yeah, we're also recording a bunch of new episodes this week, so I'm pretty stoked on a lot of our upcoming guests. Yeah, so. we had some requests. Um, Jeff Kabush, a request for Jeff Kabush has gone out. I think this might be the second time. I feel like you're just like putting him on the spot here. But 100%. Just like right. I put Jeremy Powers on the spot, and he still hasn't answered. So Well, he knows we're going to do that in person like next fall when we're actually back on the road with him. All he has to do is just email and say he, he heard it and... Aw, Peter's really upset about this. But anyhow, we have Jeff. So if there's whoever you want to hear, hopefully, you know, again, these are all cyclist guys. At least they're they're both into some different stuff. So that's I think they'll be interesting episodes. But you know, tell us who are you, who do you want to hear about? What do you want to hear about? A topic, a, a problem you're having that we can you know suss out a expert in, and and let's do that. But yeah, uh, you can let us know any suggestions or anything over at consummateathlete.com. And as always, we would love, love, love it if you would go to iTunes and subscribe, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Anything like that would be a huge help. Um, But without further ado, let's get into it and talk about all things peak performance. 
Uh, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, here with Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Uh, I hope I didn't butcher either of your last names there. No, you're good. Yes! Good to go. <laughs> All right, 10 points. We're starting off, we're starting off good. Um, so you guys just collaborated on the book Peak Performance, which is out in early June. We'll have all the links to that. But first of all, I just want to hear quick bios from both of you and how you guys came to collaborate on a book, because having written a few books and collaborated on a couple, it's a pretty intense process to choose to collaborate with someone. Yeah, I'll take this and Brad can add on if he wants, but, um, it, it kind of happened but almost by happenstance. So so Brad, I think, followed me on Twitter or something like that and then shot me an email about interviewing me for uh, one of his outside pieces. And, you know, we went through that interview and then we, we uh, you know, chatted a while afterwards. And then after that, we just kind of exchanged emails and stuff and became, uh, you know, online friends, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then one day, Brad just sends an email out of the blue and says, hey, I'm thinking about writing a book on this topic. What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I send an email back and said, oh, my God, I'm thinking about writing on the same topic. And here's, <laughs> here are 35 pages of notes I've just been collecting. So it, it just kind of happened, and it's it's worked out incredibly well. Oh, my gosh. It was kind of meant to be then. Uh, yeah, it, it it was very it's it's kind of funny the way that I describe it to people. The only additional um, additional comment I'd make is it was almost like we progressed from like online dating to like a real relationship. So like totally. we met we met in person for three days to make sure that we'd be compatible. Steve met my wife, um, and then we uh, we hit it off. I think because we're both intellectually curious and the same ideas, it, it was a pretty natural partnership. Um, I Not to say that, that writing, writing the book was easy, but certainly getting along has been easy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now, Steve, your background is in running and run coaching. Can you give us like the you know thirty second bio of you? Sure. Um, so I coach college and professional uh, runners at the college level. I coach at the University of Houston, and then professionally, uh, I coach athletes scattered around the world. Have had a. Uh, 2016 Olympian and the 800 have had five athletes finish top 15 at world championships, four or five top 10 at Boston or New York City Marathon. So run the gamut of uh, coaching pretty much anything running. That's awesome. And so you must have just had a great like body of people you could kind of, you know, poke at for this book, just as guinea pigs and people to look at for their, you know, what they do and what they do wrong, right? Exactly. You know, it's funny. My athletes get used to me, like, you know, handing them scientific questionnaires and like interviewing all the, them all the time and asking questions. They're almost like my own personal guinea pigs. Um, so awesome. it's, a, it's a great sample size of like really good elite athletes to question because a lot of times, you know, when you're investigating like just people and performance, you, you it's hard to get a hold of those people. So just to have that available and them willing to answer anything that we're uh, looking at is an Mm -hmm. amazing resource and like they've kind of got some skin in the game to be honest with you too right like because you're also trying to improve their actual performance not just like study them for the sake of (laughs) studying them right so we don't get the like you know the the bs cliche answers on things they give like the act what 
actually is going on in their head and what they're trying to do, which I think allowed us to get to a, a deeper level than some of the like surface level, um, you know, books that are out there. Mm-hmm. And now, Brad, I want your your bio as well. So you're primarily the writer. Yeah, that is true. So um, I spent a little bit of time in a consulting firm called McKinsey and Company working with um, top performers, but not from an athletic standpoint, more so like intellectual and, and entrepreneur and business, um, but have always been an athlete myself. And, oh, I don't know, about five, six years ago, started seeing that lots of what I was uh, learning in the corporate world would apply to sports and lots of what I was learning in athletics would apply to the corporate world. And uh, over the past couple of years have shifted my time from doing more of that performance management consultant in the corporate world um, to writing. And now I spend most of my time writing professionally. Uh, I have columns at Outside Magazine and New York Magazine, both of uh, at both places I cover the science of performance and then also contribute to Runner's World and uh, a handful of other spots. Awesome. So is this your first book then? Yes. Oh man, did it feel like giving birth? <laughs> or I mean, I guess you guys. <laughs> well, I haven't done that, that so. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it it the thing has been baking for quite a while, and it um it's definitely exciting to have it coming out into the world uh, pretty soon. Mm-hmm. The 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 part for me that was the most um, angstful is probably too strong of a word, but that, that provoked at least a little anxiety. It's just the process of having your most discerning readers, like you guys, read the book before anyone else and before the book's really even done. Yeah. Um, but once some positive feedback started rolling in, it, I was able to take a, a, a sigh of relief, and now we're just excited. I totally understand what you mean. Like, when you first hand it off to somebody to read, you're like, oh, God, please don't be too mean. But I guess I want you to be mean because if it's bad, I can fix it still. It's it's a nerve-wracking time, for sure. Um, and I have to say, so what I really liked about the book, I guess, kind of speaks to what you've been doing, where you blend, like, peak performance with sort of athletic performance, because I, I'm sort of like a huge fan of reading organizational books and self-help books and all of that, but I also read everything on athletics, too. So this was like a nice uh, melding thing between the two. Good. Yeah, that was- Good. That's what we are going for. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what was the easiest and what was the hardest part of collaborating on the book? I realize I'm going to ask you guys questions about athletics, but I, I'm so curious about this. So I'll take a stab at, at this first, Steve, and we'll see if you agree yeah. with me. Um, so I think that the the easiest part about collaborating, or maybe the most beneficial part, is um, just having another super smart mind to litmus test everything against. So mm-hmm. whether that was structure for the book, all the way down to the structure of an individual sentence, it's the kind of stuff that as a writer, normally I'm tormented with in my own head, second-guessing myself. And mm-hmm. to just be able to trust someone else and to say, hey, what do you think? And then that resolves what's in question um, was so beneficial, right? It's like having a built-in best friend editor there for you at all times. I like that. I think yeah. the hardest part. Oh, go ahead, Steve. I'll let you no, take go the ahead. part. All right. I was going to say, so I think the hardest part is kind of the the opposite of that, which is having, I mean, I... I I like to think that I don't have a big ego, but I also realize that anyone that thinks that they can publish work for other people to read and enjoy, it, like all writers have to have some ego just to be able to write and put stuff out into the world. Yeah. And I think that um, 
you know, the, the inverse of what I said was the, the benefit is the hardest part, which is being willing to let go of ideas that you think make a lot of sense and that sound great in your head um, that might not sound great in Steve's head and, and being able to just drop the ego at the door and, and know when to press on things that you think do make sense, but also when to release from ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just adding on to that, I think I think the benefit is that you know, normally when you're a writer and you get you get stuck, you get writer's block, like you just sit there and just torment yourself. And like a lot of times I'd just go for a run or a walk and try and work it out. But this way it was like, oh, like I'm stuck. All right, Brad, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> and like that was so, that was like the nicest feeling in the world because you didn't have to like stress yourself because he could work on it and then you'd come back and be like, okay, good, we're through with that. On to the next thing, I'm ready to roll. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same part, I think that the part Brad made, the point Brad made is that you really had to make sure that you weren't married to any idea because it, it's really easy when you're writing and it's just your just yourself to like fall in love with everything you put down mm-hmm. and be like oh this makes total sense this is the greatest and then having someone else step back and be like man this this section like we got to cut it and you, <laughs> have, you know you got to be like all right okay like that sucks i spent a lot of time working on that but okay i trust you like let's cut it mm-hmm. brad did your wife ever have to act as like a marriage counselor for you and steve <laughs> No, not a marriage counselor. She is a great copy editor, though. Um, nice. <laughs> so, her, so her role was there. But no, I mean, I don't know, Steve. I think that we were fortunate. I think we got along quite well because early on we realized that we'd, we'd both have to drop our egos. And, um, you know, I think that our advantages also offset pretty nicely. So I am a writer first mm-hmm. and a scientist and coach second. Like, that's not my training. I dabble in those areas. Whereas Steve is a scientist and coach first and a writer second. So we're both competent enough across the board to challenge ourselves. But um, I think we also knew when to kind of relinquish to the other person. Mm -hmm. So we, knock on wood, we, so far without a hitch, um, we'll see what happens in the future. I'm knocking on wood for real. But no, it was, (laughs) it was, it was pretty easy. That's awesome. Um, So let's, let's dive into the book. And so... It's interesting because normally when you think about a book about peak productivity, you tend to think it's going to have just all of these solutions for just working harder and working longer and just, you know, working more and more and more. But your book really talks a lot about the importance of rest, particularly sleep, which is, you know, a big thing that we wanted to talk with you guys about. We did an episode with a sleep scientist a few months ago, and I think it was one of our most popular episodes to date, but... There, it was definitely lacking in some of the, the practical applications. We got into a fair bit of the science, but we really wanted to kind of dive into into the science again, but also then how does that actually, you know, work for athletes and what can they do to improve sleep? So you guys have the chapter on sleep. Let's let's talk. Why does sleep matter for our peak performance? Well, I, I think it, the simple reason is it's when you get better. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have this this misconception that like, okay, when I'm putting in the work, if you're an athlete, when I'm doing like my hard workouts, that's when I get better. But the actuality is that's just the stress that's applied to the body. And your body doesn't rebuild the stores, rebuild your muscles, get stronger, have more endurance and all that stuff until it repairs itself. And the bulk of that repair process occurs when you're sleeping. I know you guys talked about the science, but you know... um, 
all those like drugs that athletes take that they aren't supposed to like steroids and hgh and those things those are their highest natural levels when you sleep Mm -hmm. so if if you don't sleep it's like you're missing your hit of like natural performance enhancing drugs so uh, you know in that sense if you don't get it you're just wasting all the work you did yeah for sure uh so was any of the research that you looked at on sleep did any of it seem surprising to you or was it all sort of what you assume which is hey sleep matters I think the most surprising part to me anyways is not only does sleep matter but there are increasing marginal returns to sleep so what I mean by that is the longer that you sleep those additional hours actually pack the greatest punch in terms of all those regenerative growth hormones that are released so using arbitrary numbers, let's say hours five to six or six to seven, you get a pulse that's one X of testosterone or human growth hormone. Hours seven to eight, that pulse might be 1.2 X. So I think that the the way we put it in the book is it's the hours of sleep that most people aren't getting, Mm -hmm. seven to eight, eight to nine, which are actually the most beneficial from a physiological standpoint. Um, That was fascinating, I did not know that. That's really interesting. So all of those executives that say they only sleep like two hours a night, like, yeah, how, how are they doing it? Now, there was always the thing that the hours before midnight were more valuable. Did you guys see anything with that? Or is that related to that idea? Yeah. No, so no, Go ahead, Steve. I'll let you take it. Yeah. So so it is related to it. it it's, um, you know, midnight is kind of arbitrary, but... The way the body generally works is when lights go down, right? Melatonin and other things kind of get released to kind of start triggering that cycle. And if you kind of delay and delay and delay that cycle and don't go to sleep until 1 or 2 a.m., let's say, is is your body just gets thrown out of whack and doesn't start that natural hormone cycle the way it is. So you're like setting yourself up um, for failure in terms of recovery, as if you, instead of getting to bed earlier. Okay. And you mentioned melatonin. I'm just going to hit some of the, the questions that we have and get a lot about sleep. Um, how do you guys feel about melatonin uh, as far as a supplement for, for high performers who are trying to get the most out of their sleep? Or any supplement, really. <laughs> I'll tackle melatonin. And Brad, if you want to answer anything else. You know, melatonin is interesting. And in that it it's not... It's not exactly a sleep aid. It's almost like a sleep triggering, right? It's the, it's almost like the signal that your brain sends to get you prepared to sleep. And the interesting thing about melatonin is that the timing really matters. So your body has like this natural ebb and flow that it occurs um, based on light cycles. And if you take supplemental melatonin at the wrong time, for example... Um, you can actually delay the quality of your sleep. So a lot of people think like, oh, I need some sleep. I'm going to pop some melatonin. And if they do it at the wrong time, it can delay your sleep. So um, timing really matters in that sense. And, and what sort of timing? You're actually trying to time it with around, you know, a, an hour or two before you go to, go to bed when natural light levels kind of decrease outside. Okay, that makes sense. Now... And I don't know if you got into this or if you saw anything on this. Taking melatonin like every once in a while versus taking it on, 
you know, a regular daily basis, is one or the other better or should you not take it at all? Or is did you come down on any side of when you I, should I, do I, it? I, yeah, I would say save it till you when you need it. Again, okay. it's, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's a supplement. Well, it almost acts like a hormone in the body. So you don't want to, if you always take it, then you disrupt your body's natural production of it. So I like to say save it for when you need it. So if you go on, you know, a cross-country flight or a, a flight to Europe or something like that where you really need to adjust quickly, then then it works well. But it shouldn't be something you become reliant on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good message. I see a lot of athletes now are sort of taking it almost like as casually as they're taking whatever, vitamin, yeah, vitamin C or something. Yeah. But yeah. And it's like, yeah, I don't know if that was the way it was intended, <laughs> but good. I that's think good. there's also, there's a lot of lower hanging fruit. So like melatonin promises a quick fix, right? Because it's a pill mm-hmm. and you pop it and then in theory it helps you sleep. Um, but you know, before one would even consider regularly taking something like melatonin or going to a sleep specialist, I would make sure that you're checking off boxes such as like your caffeine intake. Is that optimized for sleep? Um, are you staring into a screen a couple hours before you're going to bed? I mean, even worse, are you sleeping? So many people sleep with their cell phone like in their bedroom or even like on the bed. And these things are just known to be awful for your sleep. So it's almost like you know, before you even consider taking melatonin, it's probably better to, to take care of some of that lower hanging fruit. It might take more effort to, to get out of those habit chains that aren't good for sleep, but it's a, it's a more sustainable long-term solution. And for athletes, I think that it all starts with a mindset shift. So the way that I like to frame it, and not just athletes, even for creatives, like as excited as an athlete might get for their favorite, let's say like a four by one mile interval workout, and they just know if they nail that workout, they're going to get fitness from it, or a writer that's sitting down with their notebook and they're ready to, you know, turn out a thousand words. If you had that same mindset when you go to sleep, I think that people would be a lot more serious about taking care of their sleep hygiene. So, yeah, you should get excited for that hard workout or that day at the desk when you're going to crank out a column, but you should also treat sleep with, you know, exalt sleep that much because that's actually when you're going to have the the physiological stimulus for your body. And as we cover in the book, the brain's not really any different. It's it's also when your brain grows. Um, So just shifting a mindset of sleep is something like to get in or to, to, to worse cut short versus sleep is really one of the more productive things that you can do. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point. Uh, so a couple months ago, I actually did an article for bicycling where it was I tracked my sleep for a month and this is what happened. And before I did that, I was like the snottiest person when it came to sleep. Like I thought I was like such a great sleeper, just like amazing at it. It's a weird thing to be like super talented at, but like that was my <laughs> thing. Um, and then I, I looked at the, you know, tracking and there were definitely a lot of like, oh, maybe I, I'm not as good as I think I am and I'm, I'm not sleeping as much and I'm more restless than I, I realized. Uh, so I guess like that leads me to like, what is good sleep? So uh, good sleep from, from what we learned in researching the book is, well, there's two things. Good, good sleep should make you feel restorative. So the, lots of the sleep trackers, while they're good because they're they're having you think about sleep and document, they're not always very accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, New York Magazine actually just covered this. That there's a, a study that was just published in a sleep journal that showed that people that use sleep trackers actually have worse quality sleep because they're anxious about getting enough sleep. 
I totally, so I, I, I that believe that a hundred percent. I was so neurotic after like the first week right. of realizing like, oh my God, it says I'm not sleeping enough. Like, what am I doing wrong? Totally ruined my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd say that, like, it's a long-winded way of saying, well, those devices can be helpful. I'd say that the first way to gauge good sleep is if you feel well-rested in the morning and throughout the day. So if you're not nodding off, if you're not you're not fighting off um, fatigue throughout the day, and when you wake up, you feel well-rested. Um, two other parameters to look at is if you fall asleep rather quickly. So I think it's like zero to 20 minutes. Ideally, you, you want to fall asleep. And then the third parameter is um, if you do wake up in the middle of the night, let's say you wake up to go to the bathroom or something, you fall asleep quickly after that, or you sleep straight through the night. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, to the point about waking up and uh, and being super awake in the morning, uh, snooze button, yay or nay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I would say in our book, we talked a lot about uh, waking up without an alarm and seeing where that falls. Mm-hmm. And I like to tell I like to tell athletes and other people I'm working with is one of the weekends where you maybe don't have an exact time to to wake up is see where when you wake up without an alarm and see how much difference that is from when you know you'd normally wake up on, with an alarm. If it's ten to twenty minutes, that's fine. If it's around the same time, but if you're sleeping you know, 45 minutes, an hour later without an alarm, then that tells you right there that you aren't getting enough sleep. Um, So to answer your question on the snooze button, I'm against it because if you're, if you're just snoozing to get an extra 15 minutes, that extra 15 minutes isn't deep enough to do anything except, you know, make you think you're getting sleep. So I'm, I'm a fan of pushing that alarm if you have to until the last possible moment. Um, so you get as much continued sleep as opposed to, you know, continued repeated like 10 minutes bouts with a, a snooze button. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then we've talked before, but we haven't really gone into super great detail about sleep hygiene. And you kind of ta- touched on that with uh, the not keeping a cell phone on your pillow. But can we can we go into what good sleep hygiene looks like? Yeah, sure. Can you, can you hear me all right, Molly? Sorry, I think that my microphone cut out for a second earlier. Yeah, you're good now. Okay, great. So the good sleep hygiene, and, and we, we like our area of expertise is not sleep, so we talk to various sleep scientists um, for this, and, and I guess like the, the combined wisdom is not so long list. So the, the first thing is to try to expose yourself to some natural light throughout the day. Um, obviously it has benefits for, for vitamin D and bone growth and all that, but also for sleep. So just to, to get outside and, and have some natural light in your life is helpful. Uh, it helps with a circadian rhythm. And like Steve was saying, ensuring that, that melatonin is naturally released when it should be, um, probably not a, not a issue for, for your audience, but exercise is super helpful. Um, some people struggle with exercising too close to bed. It kind of riles them up. Their heart rate's up. All their physiological, uh, you know, their their body is, like, up to exercise when it's supposed to be going down. But I've also spoken with people that have no problem exercising in the evening. So that, that's probably pretty individual. Um, but exercise in general is, is quite helpful for a good night's sleep. Um, on caffeine, I don't necessarily follow this rule, so I have a hard time <laughs> saying it. Um, but ideally, you'd, you'd want to phase out caffeine six hours prior to bedtime. So if you're 
planning on going to bed at 10, you'd probably want your last cup of coffee, I don't know, no later than 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, something else that I, I thought was interesting and I had heard about, but I didn't realize like the how great the effect is, um, is just to ensure that you really don't use your bed for anything other than sleep, sex, and maybe reading like a paperback, not electronic book. Mm -hmm. um, so like hanging out in your bed, watching TV, sending off emails from your iPad, um, not so great. Um, on alcohol consumption, that was another area where there's a, a pretty good causal line. Any more than one drink before bed uh, tends to disrupt sleep. So it can help with the onset of sleep. So anyone that's ever had a few drinks and conked out, it, it, it can put you to sleep. Um, but then the actual quality of your sleep suffers and you're much more likely to wake up multiple times throughout the light, uh, excuse me, throughout the night. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just kind of going down a list in my head here. There's blue light exposure, which is like staring at your phone or an iPad or a computer screen. Um, that completely can throw off your circadian rhythm and, and mess with the your release of melatonin. Uh, again, I don't always practice what I preach here, but the research shows that you really want to avoid blue light uh, four hours prior to bedtime, oh, which that's is quite, quite that's hard. That's really hard, yeah. <laughs> You know, and I deal with a lot of college-age kids who, you know, oh do a lot of their studying at night and stuff like that. So um, there's actually a couple programs, like, uh, that you can install on um, your computer and actually on your phones. One is called Flux, and it will essentially reduce the blue light of your uh, your screen. So it kind of helps take care of that. And I know for the athletes I coach, it's made a pretty big difference because it's in this modern day and age, it's re it's impossible to say, "Hey, go avoid your phone and your computer for four hours." Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when they have papers due in the morning and they're <laughs> exactly. college kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's... Um, and then the the last thing that that I've got in my mind, Steve. Let me know if I'm missing anything. Is um, just keeping your cell phone out of the bedroom uh, when you when you go to sleep and the. The science still is not clear on exactly what the effect is, so like whether it's angst or nerves, like it's doubtful that your cell phone, other than the light, if you're looking at it, is actually emitting anything. But um, just having your cell phone like in the bedroom, even if it's face down on silent, seems to disrupt sleep. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. So you guys don't buy into the like you'll hear people talk really kooky stuff, uh, like tinfoil hat type stuff, where the cell phone and the internet routers are are, are ruining our sleep. And yeah. I would say Peter, anecdotally, Peter says this like he doesn't wear anecdotally the hat. because I basically wear a tinfoil hat, but I'm open to the scientific <laughs> explanation. So. So, Steve, maybe you've seen it. I haven't seen science that says that it's actually something about, like, the frequencies that are disrupting our sleep. I think what's more likely is that if your phone is in your bedroom and you're a normal human being, a little bit of your subconscious is thinking, like, oh, should I check my phone? Like, I wonder if someone tweeted at me. I wonder if I have an email. I wonder if my elderly grandmother <laughs> is doing okay. And it's all of those thoughts um, that even if they're occurring in your subconscious, let alone in your conscious, that that can slow the onset or, uh, of sleep. Or when you wake up in the middle of the night, if your phone's there, again, if you're like most humans, you're going to look at it, and then you're just staring into this very bright screen at one in the morning. So I think it has more to do with human behavior than than any of the kind of frequency arguments. 
Yeah, I'd like I'd agree. I think a lot of times what happens is we see in a a behavior and then we like to wrap like a fancy sounding scientific explanation around it. Mm -hmm. So we say, oh, the frequencies must be interfering with stuff. But, you know, the, the example I can give and we talked about this in our book is that have you ever had your cell phone in your pocket and then you almost like feel it phantom ringing or buzzing and you check it like instinctually and then there's there's no call there's no message and you're just like well i I thought i felt it well it's worse when you don't actually even have your phone with you and you exactly yeah (laughs) exactly so it's just like our brains work by like predicting things so subconsciously um you know we think oh it's our phone it must be that and the same thing occurs when we sleep like if our phone is next to us like some part of our brain that we're not aware of is just like monitoring that thinking oh man we might have another a buzz another beep another ring that we have to check so if you know it's there next to you it just can keep you you know your mind almost just a little bit at a, at unease so that you can't fall asleep and i think you know wrapping the sleep thing up in terms of advice is design a routine that allows you to come down off of that stress i think a lot of people try to transition from like busyness whether that's call in college you know working on papers or coming back from work or whatever it is and having this like monkey mind going crazy and then going like abruptly into sleep and just like as athletes we would we wouldn't go from like working out really hard and then straight into our car we'd have a cool down in in between we need almost a cool down period for going into sleep and that could be something as simple as as reading some fiction or just having some sort of routine to settle your mind before you transition into that like deep sleep that you're looking for yeah i think you're exactly right i know for me uh going back to the phone thing i and Brad, you may have felt this way too. Like as a writer, I try to rationalize having the phone with me where I'm like, well, I might get an idea for a story. And that definitely happens. But I've also learned a notebook with a pen next to the bed <laughs> is somehow equally you know, useful for writing notes. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that. So I sleep with a notebook next to my bed. Um, and, you know, for that exact reason. And we mentioned this in the book. There, there's actually like a there there is some like real hardwired science that great ideas do tend to come to people um in between sleep cycles or when first waking up so Mm -hmm. i'm all for sleeping with a notebook uh next to the bed um and you know i i I used to also have a phone in my bedroom and i'd rationalize it the same exact way you did but then what would happen is i'd write down the idea and then i'd open up my email or i'd open up my twitter And, and once you're doing that you're not you're no longer just collecting the idea um so yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on the hard copy notebook strategy. Now you guys go into, you sort of touched on the alternating hard and easy sort of times or focused and unfocused, as, and that was one of the main themes in the book, right? Yes, we called it uh, the growth equation. So stress plus rest equals growth. Okay. Now, I guess beyond this idea of sleep and, and whatnot, what, what do you see like uh, maybe Steve, this might be a good one for you. Like with athletes, you know, who are training hard and stuff, where do you see this this falling apart? This idea of sort of hard, like focused moments combined with less focused or recovery moments. You know, as athletes, if we're 
voluntarily doing something. We're really motivated to do it. So a lot of times with your hardcore athletes, getting the work in isn't the problem. And, and I see this with my elite runners all the time is it's not a hard thing to tell them to do crazy workouts. It's a hard thing for them to almost have the reins pulled back and to settle back and, and rest. And I think that's where this equation comes into play is the same thing we see with like elite marathoners not having the confidence to rest. You see the same thing with CEOs, entrepreneurs, people in their jobs is they want to grind away and do those, you know, eight, 10, 12 hour, 14 hour days of work and not take a step back so that's that's why that message is so strong throughout the book is we we all almost want to create this awareness to say hey like putting in hard work is great but it needs to be very focused you need to have a point to doing it just like you'd have a point out um on the you know on the track saying i'm gonna do mile repeats at this pace to get this workout in you need to have the same point in your life and then when you come off of it. You need to schedule and have the confidence to rest so that you can grow and get better in the in between times. Okay, and then Steve, I think a follow up for you with your athletes based off this or maybe just what you've been doing in the last few years, like are you actually programming sleep and sleep hygiene? How are you sort of going about that and checking in on clients with with in terms of rest and recovery? You know, we're always so training peaks or whatever software putting workouts in, but are you actually programming or coaching sleep now yeah you know it's something that we uh talk about a lot and you know i think it's 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 not something i say hey you need 10 hours of sleep this night because what happens what happens then is you you create this stress right like we talked about with the sleep trackers if you give them a number then they're gonna freak out if they don't get that number so instead we just put, put a point of emphasis is then you have a really hard workout you really went to the well on this. We need to emphasize maybe recovery, sleep for the next day or two so that we can make sure we bounce back. And the other thing is we, we track it, but unlike some of the gadgets and stuff, I actually find the best way to cra- track it is to just ask them. So we have a simple questionnaire that says, like, you know, how tired are you? How fatigued are you? How, do you, how, did, how much quality sleep did you get last night? And the funny thing is we crunched data on probably uh, 40, 40 athletes over a, a full track season last year. And the one thing that popped up consistently correlating with each other is if sleep went up, stress went down the next day. If sleep dropped, stress went through the roof, regardless of the workouts they were doing. So I use that kind of data to show my athletes, say, hey, like it is clear cut. We need to emphasize this or else that work you're doing isn't going to have as big of a bang for a buck as we want it to be. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all of that goes into the other kind of topic you guys touched on in the book, which is the idea of burnout. So, I mean, first of all, why does this come up in a high performance book? I think because a lot of of high performers end up burning out Mm -hmm. is is the short answer. Um, You know, I think that the... The, the whole stress plus rest equals growth, right? You want to stress yourself as much as possible without burning out, and that's how you get the greatest growth or the greatest training adaptation. But when you get close to that line, it's it's easy to cross it inadvertently, and it's also easy to get very caught up in the stress side of the equation without giving the rest side of the equation the, the prioritization that it needs. 
Um, I know we touched on that a little bit earlier. I just think that, you know, the athletics culture is so much about pushing, right? I grew mm-hmm. up with quotes like, if you're not, I forgot what the exact quote is, but someone's always working harder than you. So work, 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 work. Yes. And I think with social media and other venues for athletes to post all the work that they're doing all the time, it, it, it almost always seems like as an athlete, someone else is outworking you. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like all of the forces are on that work side of the equation. Very few are encouraging rest. Um, so I think that athletes tend, tend to overdo it, right? It's the combination of wanting to push yourself as close to that line as possible, but not crossing it. And then all this reinforcement to push, 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 push mm-hmm. that unfortunately leads a lot of athletes to, to push too hard. Yeah, no one is ever impressed by a rest week. <laughs> exactly. No, no one goes on Instagram and posts about their super slow recovery run, right? Exactly. So, you could probably I, run I a good that... self handicap on that, though, and just like, yeah, I haven't trained all year, and then just show up <laughs> at the line, and just win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you guys also talked a bunch about one of the ways to, you know, kind of help mitigate or avoid burnout is the idea of having a, a purpose or a goal or a why. And I think with athletes, a lot of the time, especially, I mean, especially non super elite athletes, athletes that are either trying to, you know, make it into the elite ranks or just athletes that are trying to stay, you know, in reasonable shape and maybe jump into a race or two. Uh, It's really easy for, I'll I'll put myself in that group. Uh, It's really easy for us, I think, to lose that sense of of purpose. So how do we find our way back? So I think that the, the first, the first thing that I, I would say is is just to to make sure that as an athlete you kind of have a why. Um, so I think that lots of athletes might go through the I shouldn't say go through the motions. They're passionate about their training. They care deeply. But if you ask them why they do what they do, they might not have an immediate answer. Mm-hmm. Um, they might have no idea actually because they they've never gone through that process. So I guess my first piece of advice would be to to sit back and to try to answer that question for yourself and to figure out, like, why why do you compete? Again, especially if you're not a, a professional and it's not your source of income. Um, and then based on how you answer that question, you know, I, I think there's almost two c- categories of answers. So one is for some kind of external validation. So I want to be seen as a runner or a cyclist or as a triathlete. I want to qualify for Boston. I want to be able to say that I've run a 5K in under 20 minutes. Um, I like the rush when I post my workouts on Facebook. So while all of those are are valid-wise, I would say that they can set you up for burnout and ultimately frustration because you're kind of putting your self-worth into things that you can't control. Mm-hmm. So if you have a bad race, or if you just start to age and get slower, um, you know, eventually it's going to catch up to you, and y- you're you're not going to hit a objective performance goal, and that will make you very frustrated. Or like Twitter goes down, and you can no longer brag about your workouts. <laughs> like, does that mean that you don't like sport? So there's a whole host of reasons. And it, it sounds funny when I say it, but I really think that a lot of amateur athletes get very, very caught up in kind of this external validation in the social scene, and not the social scene of doing it because they have good friends and, and training buddies and community, 
but more so because they want to be known as a runner or a person that does this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that if that's your primary motivation, I'd argue that it's probably not very sustainable because eventually, like I said, you know, performance will decline. I think the second bucket of whys and a more sustainable and I'd almost argue a more mentally healthy one is for some kind of intrinsic reward. So the way that running makes me feel or the community of runners that I surround myself with or the confidence I get from knowing that I can put myself in a hard situation and choose to, to forge ahead and continue on. Um, I think that those whys are, are infinitely more sustainable because those are, are kind of resilient to declining performance, to a great racer showing up and whooping your ass. Um, <laughs> like if, if your why comes from within and you ask yourself, why am I doing this? And that's your answer. I think you're much more likely to, to continue to do what you do and, and to do it for the right reasons. Now, Steve, do you have any advice for an athlete or, or a coach even who is dealing with this situation where, you know, you, you have someone who's, you know, is result focused or like is really just doing their run so they can post a selfie after, but you don't see that, you know, they feel really great after a run or, you know, they have friends in running um, or your other one was sort of confident. So, you know, they're obviously, they're, they're just lacking confidence in general, right? Like the running doesn't seem to be increasing their confidence. So is there like, is running just not for them or, or are there ways, you know, that you've seen work or help people find their why and guide it toward the internal? Yeah, you know, I think it comes down to mindsets uh, for a lot of those things. And what we tend to see in athletics and running is that you're either an outcome-focused person, so you have your goal is outcome-based, so it's to run this, you know, run my PR, run under three hours for the marathon, whatever it has, or you're a process-orientated person. And by process, you're focused on executing what you need to um, throughout the race and feeling how you need to um, versus having that, that time-orientated thing. And what we see over time is that process-orientated athletes tend to perform better and have less uh, risk of burnout. That's both from a practical standpoint and then also in the research you see the same thing. So as a coach, it, what you're trying to always do is engender that process-orientated approach. And creating that mindset to do that. Now, how do you change a mindset? It's incredibly difficult, but half of it has to deal with educating. So you're telling them why this will work, right? You're telling them why this will make them run faster and or enjoy running or meet whatever goals they have. Um, but the second thing I think you're looking at is, is almost trying to get them to change the story that they're telling themselves. So instead of saying, all right, I'm going to go out and run my eight miles and then I get to post it on Instagram or Strava or Twitter or whatever and I'm going to get all these likes. Um, Or on the other hand, I'm going to go run my long run and I'm going to treat myself to ice cream afterwards. What you're doing is you're you're creating this um, reliance on these external rewards and these outcomes. So instead you change your story on... I'm going to go run this run because it makes me feel good at mile four or mile five or whatever it is. You're trying to, you have to change that mindset before it happens rather than after the fact, if that makes sense. 
Have you ever pulled devices out on people and just made them go, you know, and run Ooh. with a friend or, you know, <laughs> just go run in your favorite nature trail and just tell me about it afterwards? Like not, not on Facebook, but just like, you know, give me a call <laughs> after and tell me about it. You know, it's funny. I do that a lot. And my college kids get driven, dri the freshmen get driven nuts by it because they're like, what do you mean I can't have my Garmin or my GPS watch? No. It's not a real run, you know? <laughs> so um, I do that a lot. And it's actually funny. I had a had a professional woman who was um, qualified for the Olympic trials in the 10K and the 5K. And she was coming back from a long bout of injuries and stress fractures and stuff when I inherited her as a coach. And for the first three months of her running, she wasn't allowed to wear a watch for that exact reason. Like we had to get back to the basics and and kind of, uh, you know, get learn how to run by feel and enjoy the process of it. Because you'd be amazed if you just take your watch off and then go run through some trails in nature. Like it just almost takes this this weight off your shoulder because you're not looking down and saying oh was that mile too fast or too slow or i only what i'm at mile eight and i'm trying to get 12 like it just takes that pressure off mm -hmm. so whenever someone's struggling with that i suggest ditch the watch ditch the gadgets like go find a nice trail somewhere and just go be in nature for a while don't worry about pace and just get back to the basics of enjoying it nice I like that. So we had we often ask this some variation of this question, but I think Brad, you mentioned um, sort of takeaways from the corporate world. I'm wondering, is there anything from this process of writing this book that you've sort of added to your your process of helping people, or in your writing, something that you've learned and sort of integrated, either personally or professionally? Basically, how did this book help you guys? Yeah. <laughs> so I, the answer is all of it. Um, to, to, to be honest, but so a lot of the things that we've we've touched on uh, in this conversation, I've tried to apply to my own life, um, and, and and seen some benefit. So I think the importance of sleep is has just been huge, and I now hold sleep up on a, a quite high pedestal and really try to make sure that I'm getting enough of it. Um, and then this this conversation about a why and and having a purpose that is is coming from within and internally motivated. Um, it was interesting. Is is we were having this conversation about running. I, if you were to replace the word running with writing, it's the same exact conversation, mm -hmm. right? Except instead of a PR, it's well, how is my story the top story on the website? Or did fans like it? Or how many retweets did it get? So in in so many things. Um, this, this notion of like being driven from within and having a process, uh, like what Steve calls a process-orientated approach, I think is just hugely beneficial. And it's hard to do. Like by no means does it happen automatically because if you're a runner, you want to get faster. And if you're a writer, you want people to read your book and in, in your stories. So it's just finding that balance of realizing that that's true and, and, and that that's okay, but not letting that become your primary motivation for what you do. Um, and that's something that I think is a lifelong practice, and, and at least I haven't found out just how to turn that on. There are still times that I find myself getting way too attached to the external reception of something that I write, but I think as a result of, of writing this book and, and, and thinking more, more deeply about why I do what I do, um, the, the highs are no longer as high and the lows are no longer as low for me as a writer, if that makes sense. So I, I'm much more 
um, able to just enjoy like the process of writing and coming up with ideas and trying to communicate them. And I still care about how they do externally, but I, I don't, my emotions don't swing as much. Oh, I love that. Uh, I might need to reread your book to try to get that <laughs> emotional uh, regulation again. <laughs> I said it's better. I didn't say it's perfect. Yeah, right? Um, but but uh, better. <laughs> I think the best part about writing a book or you're writing about things that are good for you is as the writers, you're sort of obligated to do all of the things <laughs> for fear that someone's going to be like, wait a second, you don't do this. I did one on nutrition and I was like, oh crap, now I have to like order the salad with the protein and not the... <laughs> you know, double order fries. Right. Totally. There, there's one specific instance um, of that. And I'll kind of say this as a disclaimer for, for listeners that read. So we talk about um, in the book, the just the vast evidence behind this notion of working in chunks. So almost like interval training in sports, but for the rest of life. So if you're mm-hmm. a writer, really not writing in blocks of over 90 minutes, maybe at the uppermost limit, two hours. But there are times when I am just on a roll and I discard that roll and I'll write for like six hours straight. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are definitely instances where, where, where I at least break away from, from some of the stuff in there. And I think that like within that, there's another lesson, which is like that so much of social science and, and even neuroscience, they're very helpful frameworks, but it's a bell curve, right? So the finding is the average and there are always some exceptions. So I would encourage, you know, at least how I read my the book and how I read the research is like these are very helpful frameworks and ideas to follow on average, but I wouldn't adhere to it like they are just set in stone rules. Yeah. It's like I was saying, some people exercise at 8 p.m. and then fall asleep by 10, no problem. If that works for you, that's great. I wouldn't change that. Um, but if you're like an average person and you're struggling with sleep and you work out at night, then yeah, the science says probably should boost your workout earlier in the day. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then Steve, what about you? What was your biggest takeaway or change from the book? Yeah, you know, just kind of layering on top of that a little bit is is I definitely had that experience of like, oh God, I'm writing about all this stuff. I have to do it all, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the examples was, you know, I I took up a meditation practice because I'm like, well, we're writing about it. Like all the research says good stuff. Like I'm going to force myself to do that. And what in the end I realized is that, like Brad just talked about, well, these are these aren't set rules; they're more frameworks. And what I needed to do was create my own spin, have my own spin for how I was going to do things that accomplish these same goals. So, you know, I might not meditate every 15 minutes, but you know, I'm going to go out on a run with no watch, no headphones, nothing, and it's gonna be me and my head alone for you know an hour long. And that's almost like my meditation pr- practice, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like taking my own spin on some of these things and, and applying it to my own life. And in and, and writing this book, I think most of these things are you're kind of intuitively aware of. Like we all know sleep matters and Everyone says it. Um, good nutrition matters. Taking breaks, vacations, whatever. But what what the process really did was really force me to see it. See, like, okay, what matters the most? What do I get my most bang for my buck for? And are there ways to almost like switch and organize my life so that I'm I'm not going crazy trying to maximize every variable, but I'm getting what I, what I want out of it. And I think that this awareness in writing this book and looking at all these people 
who have done great things across sports and um, arts and business and all those things is no one is is perfect, but they've all taken kind of what works and applied it to their own life and their own little routine. And that's what I've tried to do um, in my own life. I love that. Perfect answer. All right, so I think uh, I think we'll wrap up there, but can you guys both let us know where people can find you guys, where people can find the book, any other websites they should definitely check out? So sure. I, oh, go <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you can get the book at uh, any any re- retailer. It's on uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, all those things. Uh, comes you can out June. Pre-order it now, right? Pre-order, yeah. Comes out June six. Called Peak Performance. Um, the book website is uh, peakperformancebook.net, and then you can check me out. Uh, my Twitter and Instagram handle if you want to see my workouts and all my. Uh, <laughs> I bragging? No, just kidding. Um, is at Steve Magnus, and then I also have my own blog that is uh, scienceofrunning.com. Perfect. I'm Brad. I am at B. Stolberg. Um, if you look at Steve's workouts and then look at mine, you will laugh at mine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my writing is all stored on my website, which is bradstolberg.com. Perfect. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat. I feel like this was, again, it was such a fun book to read, and I was so excited to get the chance to talk to you guys and dig into some of it. So thanks. Thanks Thanks a lot for having us. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. Molly here. If you love listening to our episodes on active travel, you might want to head over to my new site, theoutdooredit.com, where you'll find articles featuring active travel tips from food to packing, the best spots to adventure around the world, and tons of advice on how to get fitnessing and enjoy the great outdoors. Hope to see you over there. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford, and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time.